we, uh, we remember that the hero of the Tanya, the guy who it's all about is called the Benoni. Benoni literally means the average man, but as we've come to discover, he's not so average. He's a guy who is in full control of his thought, speech, and action, and never compromises. In his heart, and in his mind, he may have temptations, urges, lusts, just like every one of us. But it never goes out. Not even in thought. He may feel it, but he, doesn't, he never actively reflects on it. Surely never speaks in a way that runs contrary to Hashem's will and certainly never does anything. And the question is how to get there. And there were a couple of ways. There was a Benoni who was the boring Benoni simply has no life in him, so of course he doesn't do anything wrong. He's a boring guy. Then you have like the ideal Benoni. He's the guy who was able to engage his mind in an intellectual process that leads him to the conclusion that you have to act in a certain way based on a code that Hashem wants. But those were the two extremes. The classic Benoni, which the Alter Rebbe seeks for each Jew, is for us to get in touch with what we call the inner hidden love. There's a part of our soul that's innately connected with Hashem. It comes out when push comes to shove. If a guy is put to a wall with a gun to his head and it says, either sacrifice your relationship with God or sacrifice your life, he will sacrifice his life. That's where that, what we call in Yiddish, the pinta leyid, the point of the Jew, comes out. But the truth is that we don't have to wait for the gun to be to our head. We can access that part of ourself and live from there. And that's the Alter Rebbe's goal. He says, if only I can get you to be in touch with that part of yourself, you will find that automatically you'll live as a Jew. And to do that, we entered into a beautiful discussion that uh, came together over the course of the last five weeks, which was all about God's unity and the opposite of God's unity, division of powers or the belief in idol worship. God's unity is not just, as we've explained it, that Hashem is one, there's only one God and no two gods, one creator and no two creators, but that everything in the world is in complete harmony with divinity. There's nothing outside of Hashem's being. God is one means God and everything He created is one. And although we seem to have a perception of self, that only comes because Hashem hid his consciousness from the world. But if we could be in tune with the truth of reality, we would see that every living thing is Hashem, is divine and is godly. So if we get in touch with the truth of reality, we see God's unity. If we choose to live the other side, we say, forget the unity. We want to live with the perception that we have that everything is separate, everything is on its own, everything is independent and egotistical, then we're living a life, so to speak, of idol worship. Not because we're serving idols and pouring oils and baking cookies to the molten images of metal. That's the, you know, the comic book version of idol worship. Idol worship simply means acknowledging in your head that there's a division of powers. The second in your head there's, crosses the thought that Hashem isn't the sole power guiding force governing everything in the universe, in a way you're serving idols. And therefore, as we've saw, seen last week, and this was the beautiful 
point that we're going to expound on tonight, every time you do a mitzvah, you are in essence declaring God's unity. Because doing a mitzvah means to do what Hashem wants. To do what Hashem wants means to acknowledge Hashem's power over the world. Hence you're saying, Hashem is one. Hashem and His world are one, therefore I do what He wants, I submit to His will. Every time we do a non-godly act, on the other hand, we're declaring idol worship. It's extreme, and it's tough, and that's, that was last week's uh, tough conversation that we had in chapter 24. But every time we do something ungodly, what we're saying is, Hashem, in this moment, I need you to bug off. I need you to not be my master, to not be in control, so I can do what it is that I want. And in that moment, you're saying there's another power. You're serving your idol, the idol of your ego. And that leads to a very interesting conclusion. The conclusion is that there's no difference between mitzvahs and there's no difference between sins. Typically, we're accustomed to labeling mitzvahs. Fasting on Yom Kippur, well, that's a big one. Eating matzah on Passover, yeah, never going to miss that. But a more basic mitzvah, eating kosher and tefillin, learning Torah or davening, those we could pass by. Those are less severe. But the truth is, every mitzvah shares the quality of being an expression, a carrier of godliness into the world. And every sin's the same way. Each Jew has his own red lines, you know, the, the one we, thing we won't cross. I won't marry non-Jewish, or I won't uh, drive a car on Yom Kippur. But uh, I will, you know, sometimes do this. Flip the TV on Shabbos. That's, what's the big deal? It's not, you know, the big thing. But if every Avera, if every non-godly act declares an idol worship, it puts everything on the same line. That's the, the stage is now set for chapter 25 quick recap, now we're ready to dive in, unpack this a little more. But you had something on the same I just had a question. I mean, we, I know we were talking about it as, as idolatry, but it almost seems to me, because you know, we're also talking about the same thing as yeah. that God creates, but man and through our ego, it, it's almost like we, not necessarily idolatry, but we're creating curtains as well. Like we can shroud ourselves in a blanket so we don't have to look or put blinders on. Yes. Them, you know, so we are creating our own. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We're, we're giving in to the curtain narrative and we're also putting up more curtains. Yeah. You know, the part of Tanya that we're studying now is the first part. The Tanya has five books, like the Torah has five books. The first book has 53 chapters. There's a third section of Tanya called the, the letter on Teshuvah. Letter on repentance, and, in, and there's a chapter there where he talks. He actually uses that very metaphor of curtains. He says every time you do a sin, you're putting up a curtain over the window, and even if it's a very thin curtain, enough thin curtains will block out the light completely. So it's very interesting that you mentioned that and, and uh, so, I mean, that metaphor. But, but but then it also, I mean, obviously you could pull them back and repent and return. Yes, yes. But if you don't, you well, that's the positive good. side. Yeah, I mean, but you are. That you have that choice. Yeah, and and keep it open. Let's let's just leave it open. Yeah, unless it's sliding back. Yeah, keep it open. Don't worry about it. Before you do the sin, we're right there. Don't worry about it. Then you've defeated the whole That's true. Yeah, you you can't sin having in mind to uh, to repent. That's like the you know the get out of jail free card. It's like no, it doesn't. 
you like after six. Yeah. yeah. After six. Okay. I'm good. Thank you. So let's let's go a little bit more. Let's take a dive into the world of mitzvahs. Good. And it's uh, just beautiful what the Alter Rebbe does in this chapter. He says, you know, till now we've been saying in general, mitzvahs carry godliness into the world. But let's, let's, uh, let's divide that up. Every mitzvah, he says, has three effects. Every time you do a positive act, three things are happening. And I'm going to call them, just paraphrasing, the momentary effect, the lingering effect, and the eternal effect of a mitzvah. In the moment, after the moment, and forever. When you put on tefillin, let's take that for example. Rabbi, I'm sorry. This is, this is only valid to the positive mitzvah. Versus yes, well, positive mitzvah, as well as the self-control that you exercise when you, do, when you refrain from a negative mitzvah. So you, you keep away. There was an urge to engage in a forbidden act. You kept away. There's a momentary thing, a lingering thing, and an eternal thing. What's the momentary thing? The moment that you put on tefillin or you control an urge, what's really happening is you're saying, in effect, you're, you're declaring, right now I'd rather be doing whatever I'd rather be doing, but I'm choosing, I'm electing to do what Hashem wants. There's a momentary submission. Every time you do something or refrain from doing something because God said so, you're saying, I have my wishes, but I'm going to let Hashem's wishes override. Hashem, you're my master. I'm going to do what you want. It's called sometimes in Hasidic language, Kabbalat Ol. It's the act of accepting God's yoke. And it's only in the moment, because the very next moment, you can do something else. Something that you want, something that Hashem doesn't want. You know, it's very, as humans, we have that free will. We can do a mitzvah and then immediately follow that with an avera. But in the moment of a mitzvah, if we just isolate that moment, there's a, there's a level of commitment that's being expressed where you're saying, Him before me. Hashem before my ego. That's the momentary effect of every mitzvah. Then there's a lingering effect. Rambam teaches us this, and it's in Talmud also. That mitzvahs change us. They actually make us better people. They refine us. Good acts make you inclined to do more good acts. Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, teaches mitzvah goreret mitzvah. A mitzvah drags on another mitzvah. And it's a physical thing. It's not uh, hocus pocus. It's psychological. It happens that way. You do a mitzvah, you do something good, you're inspired, you want to do more good things. It could, because it feels good. It, uh, it refines your character. The more good things you do, you become a more refined person. And uh, they refine our minds. If it's learning mitzvahs, if it's intellectual mitzvahs, they, they keep us sensitive to spirituality. And even Kabbalistically, there's a lingering effect that our mitzvahs have in higher realms. They effectuate different godly unions, spiritual angels coming together, being created, and uh, fusions of higher transcendental lights that all take place as a result of mitzvahs that we do or urges that we control. So that's the kind of continuous effect that your mitzvah has. You did a mitzvah today, besides for the 
acquiescence that you gave in and you said, you know what, I'm going to do Hashem's will, you're actually a better person for it. You change your character. Putting up a mezuzah. Putting up a mezuzah? Yeah, oh, all right. A it's a mitzvah. It's a mi- he's so carrying... It's not, it's not, and it's not going to take long. He's, he's, he's carrying God in the world. Exactly. How many views did it take to change a light bulb? Yeah. <laughs> and then you have the third one. And this is the most powerful effect of a mitzvah. Eternal effect. Kabbalah teaches that because only this physical world is bound by time and space. A second mezuzah. <laughs> it's a big one. It's still the first one. But yeah, exactly. One. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. There's just tonight I decided to put them all up. You know? Where were they before? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, uh, you know, we live in a physical universe. Many people, we we grow up thinking that uh, mitzvahs are symbols or they're they're like meaningful stuff that we do which signify, you know, deeper or more holy messages. But Hasidus and Kabbalah teaches us to believe that mitzvahs themselves are godly. Tefillin is godly. A lulav that you shake is godly. The matzah that you eat is godly. It's not a symbol. It's also a symbol for freedom of Egypt and all the great things. But the physical object itself is holy. And fundamentally, since God is forever, mitzvahs are therefore forever. And every time, and this is fascinating, every time we do a mitzvah, there is a place higher than time where we are constantly doing that mitzvah. You put on tefillin three years ago, there's a place where you're still putting on that tefillin. So you only have to do a mitzvah once. <laughs> well, no, well, that, that's, the, that, that's the eternal power of each mitzvah. Because, because in this physical world we're bound by time, so as time changes, we have to do more mitzvahs in the day. But the idea is that every mitzvah has an eternal, not just a lingering, you know, it, create, it sets into motion a pattern of refinement or goodness. The mitzvah itself has eternity. And I, I don't have clear proof for this, but there's indication. There's indication in Hasidic texts that when Mashiach comes, the same way Jews will be resurrected, every physical object used for a mitzvah will be resurrected. Every lulav ever shaken by a Jew, every matzah, every Torah, every tzitzit, every physical object used in the action of a mitzvah carries that eternity. And it's because mitzvahs are in essence connected to God, therefore they assume this God-like continuous existence. So we undergo change here, but the mitzvahs don't. What is your understanding of those particular things that will be resurrected? Does it look like a definitive thing in the time of Mashiach? In other words, 
Yeah. What does it look like? The lulav yeah, will be a lulav. No, it's going to be physical. And the physical reverberation is what? Oh, no, the, the, the actions won't be... Re, yeah, it won't, won't be repeated. We're not going to be shaking lulav no, constantly. No, but the so. lulav will be there. The lulav will get to experience the divinity that's going to be apparent in this world because it was used in the act of a mitzvah. Every coin we give to tzedakah, every dollar bill, every hundred dollar bill, is going to be... <laughs> is going to be there. Because it was, uh, because it was used. Just, just, just like us. No, na- now, now it exists spiritually, but it's in the time of Mashiach, it's going to exist physically. Just like us. We believe that our bodies are going to come back physically because the Jewish body is eternal, connected to God. The, Jew- the, the physical body will return. So too, the physical body of every mitzvah object will also return. That's... Uh, yeah. So, but, but it, it's it's not the things on its own. Like everything you mentioned is associated with a prayer. Like it's, it's one thing to eat matzah, but if you say a blessing over it, same with the etrog, you say the prayer. Same with the tefillah. Yes. You don't just put it on or just look at it. You have to yes. say the prayer along with it. That elevate. Well, that's what makes it a mitzvah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. As soon as it's as soon as it's the as soon as, soon as it's mitzvahified, yeah. if you will. <laughs> Yeah, not, it's not like a wool on, on a sheep will automatically be resurrected. Right, if the right, wool right. was transformed into tzitzit and it was worn by a Jew and made a blessing over it, excuse me, so then it'll, uh, yeah, then, then, then it'll come back. So using it in action and prayer is what... That's right. Because, because well, always... using it in mitzvah. Yes. Sometimes okay. it involves a prayer, sometimes there's no prayer. You know, okay. matzah... Even if we'll learn about this more in chapter thirty-eight, you know, keep keep. Uh, I always keep you guys on cliffhangers, but he, he talks about there how some mitzvahs, although they're supposed to be done ideally with a prayer, even if you didn't do the prayer, if you eat matzah on Passover night, no intention, no bracha, you did the mitzvah. Okay. So in that way, you know, it still it still counts. And are they individual? They're personal to you. Yes, they're personal to you, the performer. And if it was a group of Jews that performed the mitzvah, a Torah reading together, or a minion together, then it's unique to all of us. And we get to experience, or re-experience, whatever it is that, uh, you know, that involves that. And by the way, he, he, the Alter Rebbe also says that uh, this eternal effect, you know, this is in a higher realm. But let's say in the lower realm, in this world where there is change. So let's say you do a mitzvah, and then the next second you do an Avera. So... You're learning Torah, then you go and you uh, eat, have some bacon. Yeah, yeah. You listen to a Torah class, and then in the morning, yeah, right afterwards, it's bacon and eggs. So, what happens is you've ac- you've actually created a tension of energies. There's a godly energy, and then the and then a um, a sin energy, and there's conflict. They don't they don't cancel out one another. But it kind of stops the spiritual reverberation that a mitzvah starts. But let's say you do a mitzvah and then another mitzvah and then another mitzvah. So the energy becomes cumulative. So you went in the morning, you washed your hands in the morning. You started off a cycle of mitzvahs. Then you made a blessing on the breakfast. Then you put on tefillin. Then you davened. Then you sat down to learn. 
then you went and did work honestly. So these are all, you've created now a cumulative force that not only above is there eternal elements to the mitzvah because that's the way it always is, but even in the physical world, you've created a chain reaction and now your mitzvahs become more powerful as they gain momentum. So therefore, the author says you should always try to find yourself doing chains of mitzvahs if you can. Because then each, each one is exponentially um, empowered, I guess is the word with more and more, compacted. it's exactly, exactly. It's compacted, the, well, compounded, yeah. The energy is compounded and grows exponentially. So, uh, so this is the power of a mitzvah. By the way, not to, uh, not, to, not to rain on the party, but with sins, it's the, it's the same thing. With sins, with, with non-godly acts, you have the momentary, effect. The momentary means in the moment you're declaring Hashem is not the master. Hashem, I'm not looking at you right now. You're not running my life in this moment. That's only in that moment because the very next moment you can submit and do God's will. So there's, there's a momentary effect of a sin. Then there's the lingering effect of the Avera. Just like a mitzvah refines your character, the, the more Averas make us inclined to do non-noble things. They desensitize us from spirituality. You know, there was a great rabbi. I love this story ever since I heard it the first time. Lived in Montreal. His name was Rabbi Greenglass. He was a Kabbalist. He was a, a big, a, a very, very great man. Now, in Halacha, it says, Jewish law, it says that in the morning, if you don't wash your hands, there is a ruach ra'a, a spirit of evil that remains on your fingertips and accompanies you throughout the day, it's a negative force. Sorry about this uh, mezuzah noise. The mezuzah business. So uh, there's, there's a negative energy on your hands. So this young student, 17-year-old student, once came over to Rabbi Greenglass, he says, I don't get this hocus-pocus negative energy. You know, I, I don't wash my hands in the morning and uh, nothing happens to me. What's the negative energy? I don't get it. So he said, your lack of care is the negative energy. The fact that you're desensitized and you don't appreciate it is itself the expression and the result of not washing your hands in the morning. This rabbi was, was said to say that he could see, he, he would walk into the dorm rooms of the students and he was able to tell which ones washed in the morning, he had a, like a little Kabbalistic feel. The Rebbe once said about him that he, ha that he has Kabbalistic powers. He said, he, he once walked into a room, he says, uh, I, I see green creatures climbing on the walls. <laughs> he saw the, the demons, you know, something like uh, things that were being created. But, but, it, but that's the thing. See, the, the, the desensitization itself. You know the joke, what's the difference between ignorance and apathy? I don't know and I don't care. So sometimes the, the I don't care itself is the negativity. And the, the fact that a person can do one negative thing after another negative thing, he becomes, you know, becomes non-feeling. The Talmud actually says when a person commits uh, a grave act twice, it already becomes permitted for him in some way. He starts looking at it go, and he starts justifying it in his head. And before long, he, he's numb to it. So that's the lingering effect of a sin. And then there's an eternal effect of a sin. And close your ears for this one. But there's a part above 
where whatever sin we committed, we're constantly committing. I don't like that one either. There's there's a place above where, so to speak, there's an eternal parallel dimensions. Now, I I mentioned last week that there's there's an upside to this because uh, because with with um, with sin, the 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 quintessential characteristic of sin is that it's against God. Anything against God, by definition, is not eternal. Only Hashem and things that are attached to Hashem are eternal. So by definition, a sin has to go away. So when Mashiach comes and the truth of reality is revealed, all of that power will go away. But nowadays, we actually schlep our souls, our godly souls, into this vicious cycle of, uh, of sin. Remember the graphic analogy we talked about last week? The Altair at the end of chapter 24, he says, schlepping your soul into a sin... It's like taking a king, grabbing him by the hair, and putting him into a toilet bowl before you flushed. Your soul is that pristine. Your soul is a noble, a piece of God, and you're schlepping it into an act that's uh, the antithesis of godliness. But let's talk about the mitzvahs. Okay? Let's, let's, let's keep to the good side. Let's keep to the good side. There's an eternal power to every good deed. By the way, the Rebbe would use this line from the Tanya extensively whenever he was asked about his mitzvah campaigns, he would encourage us to go out and put on tefillin even once to a Jew. You meet a Jew once, you never put on tefillin before, never going to do it again. Many people ask there, but what's the point? What's the point of putting on tefillin once if he's not committing to it? And the Rebbe quoted this line from the Tanya and he said, every mitzvah is eternal. If a Jew will put on tefillin even once, that means that for eternity, a part of his neshama is engaged in a process that's uniting him with God. How could we ever give up on such an opportunity? It's a paradigm shift. Doesn't mean you get away with one. Okay? Of course, you have to do more. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta, uh, yeah. But there's a flip side to this to this whole conversation. Because, you know, if, if mitzvahs are eternal and they're so great, so what does it matter, the, uh, the momentary effect? What's unique about the momentary effect? There's an eternal dimension going on here. Who cares about finite elements of a mitzvah? So the Alter Rebbe says, there's something about the momentary declaration of a mitzvah that nothing can compare to. And that is that it's only in the moment that there's truly nothing but Hashem. If you're looking at a mitzvah for the refinement that it brings you, or for the eternal continuity that it brings you, so in a way, there's a a benefit, there's a perk to the mitzvah that detracts from its purity. If we look at the mitzvah from the momentary dimension where you're saying, now it's not me, it's God, it's only there that you truly come in touch with Hashem Himself. There's nothing in it for me. There's no benefits, there's no bonuses, there's no cumulative points. There's just a master and I am submitting to the master's will. 
So of course, the eternal effect of a mitzvah is huge, but there's also incredible value to the momentary effect because that's where you truly declare it's about God, not about me. And that's truly where the shared characteristic of all mitzvahs comes into play. You talk about mitzvahs bringing benefit. Well, there I could see differences. Big mitzvahs bring big benefit. Small mitzvahs bring small benefit. Bigger acts have bigger effects and smaller acts have smaller effects. So there it's a... uh, What do you call that when you're looking for the investment? Quid pro quo, but there's a... Yeah, it's like... uh, it depends. There's a word for it. It's proportionate. Cost benefit. There it is. Return on investment. The ROI. There you go. The ROI. You look at the ROI when you're dealing with mitzvahs as they are benefit related. But when you look at a mitzvah as submitting to Hashem's will, it's the baseline for everything. And it covers every single mitzvah equally. There's no mitzvah where you submit more to God or less to God because it's the same God. You know, Hasidus teaches about uh, Shavuos, the holiday when we got the Torah. What made the Jewish people unique was that God offered the Torah to all the nations. He asked them if they accept it. And they each had one question in the beginning. They wanted to know what does it say in the Torah? And then Hashem gave them one of the examples and said, oh, too difficult, we can't take it. With the Jewish people, they said, we're going to do and then we're going to listen. We're gonna, whatever you want, we'll do first and then we'll understand. So simply it means we'll, we, we agree to engage in the actions and then we'll discover the underlying basis for each mitzvah. But Hasidah says there's a, much deeper, there's a much deeper thing that happened here. When you ask what's in the Torah, What that means is for you, Torah is a series of instructions. And so before I commit to the instructions, I don't know what the instructions are to see if I can commit to it. When you say we will do and then we will hear, what you're actually saying is we accept you. We accept you. Whatever comes along with you, we're in. We want relationship with God. What does that that mean? We'll see... We'll, see, we'll, we'll soon see what it means. Well, tomorrow it's going to mean slaughter your animals in a particular way. The next day it'll mean fast on Yom Kippur. The next day it'll mean build a sukkah. The next day it'll mean blow a shofar. But we shift from the commandments to the commander. And we say, we want the commander. And whatever commandments follow, we'll follow. But we're committed to him, so automatically we commit to everything which follows. It's like any relationship. Are you committed to the person or to the acts? If you're committed to the acts, I'm gonna, I promise I'll do this for you and that for you and this for you and that for you. Then your entire relationship is limited by the things that you're doing. But if it's I'm committed to you, I'm committed to you as a partner, all the details come as a result of your relationship with, with the other person. So truly, to get to the essence of a mitzvah is to understand that we're in relationship with Hashem. And so, no matter which act it is, if it's an act which brings Him pleasure, we're doing it. And if it's an act which brings Him the opposite of pleasure, we're staying away from it.
And with this in mind, the Alter Rebbe says, it's easy to live as a Benoni. Remember the verse we started the Tanya with on the title page. The verse that the whole Tanya is based on is Ki karov The matter, keeping Torah, is very close to you. And the Tanya wanted to know, how is it very close? How is it very easy? So the Alter Rebbe says, it's very easy when you live with this perspective. If I can recondition you, says the Alter Rebbe, if I can recondition you to see mitzvahs not as independent, distinct actions, expressions of submission and faith, but if I can get you to see the mitzvah as a key to your relationship with Hashem and an Avera as a crack in that relationship, so then automatically you'll find yourself doing right and staying away from wrong. It's easier said than done, I guess. <laughs> but, but it's the truth. If you can live from that perspective, you will find compromise coming automatic lack of compromise coming automatically you just don't compromise I'm just not in that space and so from this perspective we have a very profound discovery on mitzvahs that they're not just or we're not viewing them in terms of their meanings and result that they bring, but we view them as an opportunity to celebrate and to live the harmony and truth of God's unity in this world. And the Alter Rebbe concludes the chapter with a final thought. He says, Moshe Rabbeinu, on the threshold of Israel, Jews have spent 40 years in the desert They're about to enter the promised land. The utopia, the promised goodness that was supposed to embrace the Jewish people after so many years. The culmination of everything God had promised to forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The reason we went into Egyptian exile was all to get to Israel and the wonderful life that we would live then. All blessings were promised to us. All good was promised to us. And Moshe tells us, one of the constant mitzvahs that you're going to have living in Israel is to recite Shema twice a day. We do this till today. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad where we declare Hashem is one. And the halachic meaning of Hashem is one besides what we discussed tonight Hashem's harmony in creation. But the halachic meaning is that when you say that verse you're actually supposed to have in mind, I'm ready to give up my life and die for God. So the Alter Rebbe says, really? Is that the reminder which we need going into Israel? We were promised going into Israel that we're going to have no challenges at all. There would be no enemies, no prosecution, persecution. Even wild animals would be afraid of us. So why would we need to ever engage this idea of I'm ready to die for God? A guy going into the Holocaust, he needs to be told that. Listen, you're going into a challenging time. Every day, declare, remind yourself, Hashem is one, you're ready to die for it. 
A guy going into the Spanish Inquisition, he needs to know this. But a guy going into America, the free world, he's going into Israel, literally the free world of the time. You need to be told, is that like your, your parting message? Remember guys, how committed you are, you're ready to die for Hashem. So the Alter Rebbe says, in light of what we just said, Moshe Rabbeinu was telling the Jews, if you're ready to die for it, that means there's a part of you that's always connected. So now that you don't have to die for it, live it. Connect to that part of you, which had it come to the gun to the head, you would give up your life. Now you're going to a place with no challenges. Remember that the truth is still the truth. Every positive act is a carrier of divinity. Every negative act is a declaration to the opposite. So live with that mindset. And even as you're free, remember that Hashem Echad. Remember that Hashem is one. Chaim, 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 Chaim.